Hello everyone and welcome to Uncomplicated, a podcast for education professionals, mat leaders, school staff, teachers and anyone interested in what's going on in the world of education. Um, my name is Tom Kershaw, I'm an education market specialist at IRIS and today I'm joined by Simon Freeman, Managing Director of IRIS Education and Nick Clark, our Senior Product Manager. I'm really excited about this uh, because you know I've got a background in teaching and um, I was a teacher for 11 years and I love any opportunity to talk about the education sector and um, Simon I don't know if I can throw over to you to introduce yourself. Hello everybody lovely to be here um, as Tom introduced me my name is Simon Freeman I'm the proud managing director of the Iris education business uh, we are uh, we deliver software to uh, over 12,000 schools across the UK and I think we form a key part of the day-to-day activities that go on in schools um, really passionate about education. I've spent over 12 years in the public sector delivering technology and uh, software into various bits of public sector and really pleased to be here today to talk about the exciting things that are going on in uh, in education. Thank you Simon and Nick. Hi everyone, my name is Nick Clark and I'm a senior product manager here at Iris. I look after uh, bits of our MIS business. Um, but like Tom, I was a teacher for uh, around 12 years, a deputy head for around six of those, and I spent my whole career uh, reasonably obsessed with education and technology. And still is, yes. Definitely I, still I can out. attest to that. Definitely still out. So today, uh, this is a bit of an introductory um, podcast, this, because we've got a, a series coming up um, where we're going to go through various aspects of um, the March white paper um, and explore a few of the, the topics in there in quite a lot of depth. So we're just setting the scene here. We're going to discuss some of the biggest challenges facing schools and trusts alike as, as they head back into school and kick off the new academic year. We're going to explore how some of these challenges relate to the strategic and ambitious education objectives that have been set out in the March uh, white paper. And we're going to deliberately ignore any changes um, in Secretaries of State over the last few weeks. Um, I think we're too far down the line for any um, any changes um, in the direction of travel from the white paper. Um, and we're going to begin with the, the four key topics in the white paper. And the first one was an excellent teacher for every child. Um, we're going to go into more detail in our top tips for effective recruitment podcasts, which you can listen to um, after this. But in essence here, this was about, by 2030, every child being taught by an excellent teacher trained with the best evidence-based approaches. So this was talking about things like securing a future for the Education Endowment Foundation, the golden thread of professional development, so these new MPQs for leading literacy, behaviour and culture, um, and more support for initial teacher training, um, early career uh, framework. Problem is, According to various sources, so I've got one in front of me here, the State of the State of Education, the Profession Report, Annual Survey of National Union Members, 44% of England state school teachers plan to quit by 2027. And schools are struggling to fill vacant posts. 73% of teachers say this has worsened since the start of the pandemic. And over half of teachers are now saying that their workload is either unmanageable or unmanageable most of the time, which is a significant increase up from 35% in 2021. So we've got some problems here. We've got some problems with teacher recruitment, and we've got some problems with teacher retention. Big question is, going into the new academic year, how do we solve those? Simon, any thoughts on that? Uh, it's, it's clearly a, you know, a huge challenge for, for the education, education sector, and uh, as you say, Tom, some, some well-reported stats there. I think there's a few things that uh, certainly will be addressed through policy uh, and obviously the focus that the government's put on on training new teachers but there's some things that we in industry I think can do to help and 
certainly the making that recruitment process easier and providing the right tools and technologies that can facilitate you know our roles being opened up and being visible to, to where the, uh, uh, the candidates are needed and also providing better tools and technology just to make the day-to-day workload more manageable to try and secure teacher attention and to stop teachers leaving in the first place. Um, that is something that I guess we at Iris spend quite a lot of time focused on and would be good for us maybe to touch on a little bit today. Yeah, certainly. I think in terms of um, managing that day-to-day workload, Nick, you know, a lot of our systems there, really key to helping teachers. Yeah, I think so. I think most teachers uh, don't leave the profession because they don't like working with the students. Most teachers leave the profession because they have too much to do outside of that. And certainly part, part of my, ex- my, uh, my reason for leaving teaching was, was to do with that. Um, but having good quality tools and technology to support that uh, modern technology that enables you to do more with those tools I think is incredibly important for managing to retain good quality staff for longer periods of time. So you t- talk about retaining um, staff for longer periods of time I think there's also a big focus on sort of putting teachers on more of a pedestal and, and I, I think this notion of starting salaries of 30, 30 grand a year, uh, making them commensurate with other sort of graduate employment um, opportunities out there, that sort of thing is probably going to help to attract in the first place, I would have thought. I wonder, Simon, if there's any more sort of strategic ideas um, maybe we can think of in terms of teacher recruitment, um, you know, certainly from you know your position um, within a, a leadership um, position within IRIS, terms of proactive recruitment, maybe teacher talent pools, things like that. I wonder if there's any ideas you've got surrounding that. Rather than ideas, I've talked about some conversations I've had over the last two weeks actually. I was speaking to a CEO of uh, quite a large mat only a week ago and this is the main topic for discussion for them around their leadership table. How do they attract talent? How do they get those increasingly fewer number of teachers leaving teacher training? How do they attract them into the mat? Because the ability for that organisation to differentiate itself and to deliver the attainment that that, um, uh, that they were looking to deliver is uh, is entirely dependent on getting the right staff in. And the, that leadership team were putting a huge amount of focus on how they presented themselves as an organisation. So how good were the adverts they put together? How clear were the roles? What was the local surrounding area? And, and what were the things that teachers could expect to um, to be to partake of when they joined uh, the, the trust? That was really important to the candidate attraction experience and I think providing those sorts of tools that make the recruitment process easier uh, and enable trust to put themselves forward in the best possible light, uh, be that uh, jobs boards, be it um, where those jobs are advertised and how they're positioned, uh, I think that's you know going to be increasingly important. And obviously a lot of that has got to do with having you know a very powerful HR system in place to support that. And I wonder, Nick, you know, you coming from the point of view of um, student MISs, they're almost like a, an HR system for kids, are they not? Um, but we don't tend to value the HR system within education as much as the MIS for students. You know, what, what do you think there is in terms of a place for that HR system that almost is, is mirroring the, the professional development of your staff in the same way as you would you know, mirror the educational development of students? It's interesting. I, I think you're you're absolutely right. An MIS, in my opinion, is is for students, and we we track many details about the student's life cycle through right from foundation stage all the way through to when they leave at GCSE, and we uh, delve into minute aspects of their lives. We collect details about what happens to them, observations, and things like that. 
Um, often the MIS is seen as a kind of uh, small repository for staff details, but I think using a decent HR system to manage the life cycle of your people, your teaching staff, uh, your support staff, your trust staff, should give better insight to allow you to advertise right and also to retain staff well um, and build a really uh, really high quality culture around that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about valuing that development, isn't it? And it's, um, it is. it's your staff knowing that that's valued with you at the investments that you're making as a trust. Yes, indeed. And also communicating why those details are kept in the way that they're kept and why we really value keeping that high quality data um, so that staff can understand that it is it's a well-being tool. Perfect. So thank you, Nick. Um, I'm going to move on to the next area um, of the white paper. So this was to do with delivering high standards of curriculum, behaviour and attendance. And I'm going to put that together with, with the third area, um, targeted support for every child who needs it. So just to recap for the audience, um, this was essentially the government saying that by 2030, every child will be taught a broad and ambitious curriculum in a school with high expectations and strong standards of behaviour. I mean, I think this is this has always been um, you know, quite a key feature. Um, but also specifically that the third point though, was every child um, falling behind in English or maths will get the right support to get back on track. And this was talking about the parent pledge, it was talking about Senko's completing um, a Senko MPQ, an increase in tutoring provision, um, and a really secure future for the Education Endowment Foundation to be evidence of the heart of, um, heart of the system there. So I think maybe, and I'll, and I'll come straight back to Nick, um, because this is data again, isn't it, Nick? It's, it's how can student data be used and applied to quickly improve student outcomes and well-being with that targeted evidence-based support you know i think for mats and schools alike data is becoming more and more valuable it's becoming more and more important if we look into the private sector uh, to a, a for me a particularly boring example is the insurance industry data is huge that you know, the data warehousing and the way that they compare contrast and use that data in assessing risk for my car insurance or whatever I choose to insure, um, data in that industry is, is really paramount. And it's becoming that way in education. But having good quality data about your students and about your staff is incredibly valuable and incredibly impactful. But having it all in one place without spending, and I spoke to uh, a CEO of, of one of the trusts that I work with uh, a few weeks ago, and he said, well, actually, we spend 95%, 95% of my time and my data manager's time and my people's time is spent collecting and looking at that data. 5% is spent doing something with it. How can we flip that? And that's the, the question that I ask the team that I work with in, in building our products. How can we flip that so that schools can spend 5% collecting that data and 95% of their time actually doing stuff with it rather than learning Excel school skills or pulling that out of a database in order to do something with it. Um, because bringing data of different types, different places, different varieties about our students, staff, finances, all of those things can be used to really benefit and build up that whole picture. You know, if we know we have attendance data about students, that's great. That gives us part of the puzzle. But once you plug in maybe behavior data or demographic data, uh, even crime data or postcode data, you start to build up those areas of the picture and the puzzle that you don't have already. Uh, for me, that's fascinating. But I know that 
some trusts are already doing that to great effect. Yeah, and I, and I think it becomes harder, doesn't it, as, as trusts grow in size. And, and I wonder, Simon, again, coming from your leadership position in, you know, in a large organisation and, and the experience you've had there, managing data on a, on, a, on a big scale. So if you're a multi-academy trust and you've now got you know, 10 schools or more and you're pulling in lots of data from various sources, that's got a lot of challenges related to it. It's a huge challenge, uh, Tom. It's a huge challenge, and you think about you know an organisation on the scale you've just described. There are millions of data points, be it attainment data, be it finance data, be it HR data, be it public data that that uh, Nick just referred to. And how could you possibly plug all that together in a series of spreadsheets and ask the right questions to get the right answers? It's just it's just not possible. And increasingly, you know, I'm having conversations. Nick just referred to somewhere. Uh, those higher performing maths have really understood that if you can uh, put this data together in a sensible way and, and interrogate it, it can be insightful into how we improve attainment of children. And asking simple questions like, why is the English performance in this school in a trust uh, doing better or worse than the English performance in a different school? Um, it might not might not be obvious on on the surface, but actually, when you start to look at all the variables, maybe attainment, maybe public, um, uh, maybe socioeconomic data, might be teacher absence, might be teacher training, many many things that could could, could impact that. Um, and actually, when you can see uh, what's driving those differences, you can make very targeted decisions, and that informs a leadership team about how they can improve. Uh, and ultimately, that's what everyone's here to do in education to improve the attainment. And I think the data is absolutely key to being able to do that. If I could just expand on that point though, the, uh, that data is only, only available if you have the right tools in place and if you have lots of different data in different silos and different bits of systems, uh, it's almost impossible to stitch that together unless you're going to spend a very, very long time putting spreadsheets together, which uh, I know many schools complain that they do spend a lot of time doing that. Um, but investing in the tools that enable you to do that and surfacing those, those um, potentially linked bits of information. Uh, is something that we're focused very much on and, and can, as I say, deliver some pretty significant benefits. And I suppose it's removing the need to work with just anecdotes. You've got actual hard data which you can go, well, Absolutely. This is this is happening yeah. um, and we can do something about it by doing this because we know now we followed that, we made that intervention, this has been the change that's resulted from it. So it's evidence-based. So again, it's keying in with some of the ideas of the white paper here. Absolutely. Um, the last area of the white paper was to do with a stronger and fairer school system, and I think this is probably the most significant part of it in terms of the changes to the education landscape. This is going towards a fully trust-led system. So this is the notion that by 2030, all children will benefit from being taught in a family of schools uh, with their school in a strong multi-academy trust or with, or with plans to join one. Now, we know at the moment that I think the average size of a multi-academy trust is about six and a half schools. There's a lot of big players that are skewing that average and the modal average is only about two. So what that means is we're going to get a massive amount of growth if this is going to be realised by 2030. This is, this is going to make massive changes to the educational landscape and it's probably a big time of uncertainty for, for CEOs of multi-academy trusts and indeed schools that haven't yet academised. Um, so I suppose, Simon, if I come to you first, um, if we take it um, from the point of view of a school that maybe is still local authority maintained, they're looking out there, they can see the landscape is changing, they're going to have to do something about it, what would you be your advice for them? 
I think the first thing would be would be to look at what uh, has gone on in the local area, and um, you know, there obviously would have been others that will have uh, would have taken academization status and listening and understanding the journey that they've been through. Um, I think there are many many use cases uh, where that has been a very positive uh, positive outcome. Um, there's clearly quite a lot of support available uh, within the market to help some of the thinking and the the um, administration that goes behind becoming a uh, becoming an academy, but the the benefits that I think we observe from the leadership teams that we speak to of uh, the ability to make um, more independent decisions, the ability to potentially attract talent that they might not be able to attract, the ability to share resources across multiple schools that might not have been possible when in a local authority. You know, all of the sort of building blocks we talked about um, earlier today actually can come together to create that stronger, fairer system that means you know schools can pull on wider resources than otherwise might be available and have a level of independence to drive performance in the way that they feel is is the right way to do it. So uh, I would, I guess my guidance would be you know, listen and learn because there'll be others who've been through that process um, and uh, yeah, probably encourage schools to do it because I think it's a positive way forward. Well, I think quite sage advice there, Simon, in terms of looking at others who have gone through the process. Um, I think you know equally on the on the the front of multi-academy trusts that are existing at the moment that will probably have to look to expand. Nick, I know change management is one of your uh, specialist areas or areas of interest. Um, I mean, you've talked to me ad nauseum about it, so I'm sure you can give us um, a couple of bits of advice um, here on the podcast. Um, you know, what, what advice would you give to, to CEOs who maybe a matter of two or three schools um, who are thinking, right, well, we've got this journey now towards this minimum size of 10 over the next few years. What's that going to look like? Yeah, I think it's really interesting, and I'm really sorry I've bored you about change management many times in the past. Uh, I'm really interested in it because it, it kind of cuts through as a thread through through all of this. Uh, and I've been on that journey with with a school that I was deputy at uh, before I left teaching, and we we joined an academy trust. So I understand the the worry and the fear that that goes through the school, the teaching staff, uh, support staff, and those things are, are around joining a multi academy trust. I think the landscape has changed a lot and, and I'm privileged in my job to work with lots and lots of multi-academy trusts and see lots of different cultures um, and ways of working across those trusts and of course if you're a single school looking to academize or, or understanding that the way of the world is that schools are going to be asked to academize or move towards that within the next few years there are lots of different trusts out there from nationwide trusts where you can join different groups up and down the country that maybe fit your culture or your values, or local trusts which maybe fit more with the, with the local needs of your community. So I think there is a lot of choice. But through all of that, there is a change management aspect because of course people are fearful. Fear drives most of the, most of the worry around change. Uh, I'm quite lucky, I, I, I genuinely like change, I like changing things and doing things differently, but I think I'm in the minority. Uh, there's some really interesting, interesting research around change management, uh, from, from who starts that first right through to who are the, the, the kind of the laggards at the end or the people who don't want to change. Most people are somewhere in the middle. And there are a few things that you can do really well to help bring those people, it's a very politically correct statement, but bring those people on the journey with you. Um, and one of those is to make sure, first of all, very simply, that people are aware of what is going on. Communicate all the time, because your people in your school will understand what's going on, whether you tell them or not. Things have a way of finding themselves out. So communicate all the time 
with your stakeholders, your people who work in your schools, and your community as well, to help them understand at the right time what's going on. Because that can seed this understanding, as well as perhaps a little bit of interest in the change, rather than, I don't know anything about this, I don't want to do this, I'm going to dig my heels in, I'm definitely not going to be part of this, to a, a curiosity, I suppose, around, actually, I wonder if this might be an interesting thing to do. So making sure that that communication is there, which leads to, in, in change management terminology, I suppose, is, is desire, um, is an interest in the change. Um, building a champions network, building groups of people who can help you to manage that change as you go through is also really important because they can communicate both up and down your organisation. Um, so that, that, there's lots of ways to do that. But the thing that cuts through all of this, uh, I think, and something that's far too big to talk about in, these, in, in, in one section, is culture. What does, what's the culture in your school at the moment? What's the culture in the trust that you're joining? Uh, it's incredibly important that, that is, that's, that's thought about. It's a really big topic. You can change culture. Uh, you can also fit yourself to other cultures, but it takes a lot of work. Yeah, and I suppose this must have parallels as well, Simon, to you know, mergers and acquisitions in the commercial world. Um, you know, this this is happening with, within education in maths. But you know, what, what what's your experience of how how, how do you successfully merge two organisations together? It's a great question, and I, I agree it does have a huge amount of, of parallels in the commercial world. And I think it comes to the next point about culture. You know, you take two different businesses that will have very potentially very strong cultures that have done really well. It's not there's a good culture or a bad culture. You may have two businesses who've got brilliant cultures, they just might be very different. And I think the, the leadership challenge is how do you bring those things together and keep the best of both without destroying or over, overlaying one or the other. Um, and that's a real challenge. You know, there are going to be schools that join academies, go and join master academy trust where there are fantastic aspects of the culture and that will be seen in uh, in student performance and, uh, and aspects of the school and how do you bring that and, and form that with the, the wider ethos of, of the rest of the, um, uh, the multi-academy trust and I think that's uh, that's easier said than it is to do in reality but I think strong leaders or many leaders uh, in education have demonstrated that that can be done really well um, and you know we see some absolutely outstanding multi-academy trusts uh, across uh, across the UK so it clearly is doable um, I think to, to Nick's point earlier going through that change process carefully and making sure that everyone's on board there will undoubtedly be a lot of concern when somebody joins a new organisation um, and probably very rightly in some cases and how do you understand those firms listen to them and then try and allay them through that process and I think when you speak to many people who go through that change curve the perception of of how uh, fearsome this could be at the beginning versus actually what it was like when they get to the end is quite a transformation. People think, oh, actually it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be or actually there's a whole bunch of positive outcomes that, that maybe I hadn't thought about that have, have now uh, manifested themselves. And um, I think that's why I said hearing those stories from others is quite powerful. If, if you're about to go into that process, it can be quite powerful to lay some of those fears. But um, culture, definitely uh, definitely something that leaderships and, and trusts are going to have to have to focus on. Yeah, it's a culture, the watchword. Um, so we'll be exploring that um, more in our in our change management podcast. Um, and Nick and I will also be teaming up uh, to go through a recipe for a strong trust where we'll delve more into the data side of things. Um, and we will also have podcasts on safeguarding 
um, and also, as I mentioned at the start, on the recruitment um, side of things to, to go into a little bit more detail um, some of the things that we talked about uh, with regards to an excellent teacher for every child. Okay, so I think that probably brings us to the end of proceedings for today. I mean, I've really enjoyed this session, uh, but I think before we go, um, any final thoughts from you, Simon, on what we've talked about? Uh, it's been really interesting to kind of unpack the white paper in this way, I think, and uh, people will agree or disagree with some of the themes and policy directions, but what's clear to me in, in reading the paper and, and in having this discussion today is there are some really key building blocks that help uh, help schools, academies uh, d deliver for the future aspirations of the children that they serve. And those building blocks often hinge around, I think, two of the key topics that came out today, culture and data. Uh, and making sure that we have the right tools to surface that data so that we can use evidence-based uh, evidence decision-making and having the right culture that supports every child to achieve their best. I think, uh, in fact, you know, I, I sent some of that from the white paper and I think that's really powerful. Thank you, Simon. And Nick, anything from you? Yeah, indeed. Um, I think it's, uh, and I appreciate that I'm, I'm more of an outside observer to, to the school system rather than being directly involved in it these days. Um, but I think it's a really exciting time for education at the moment, um, with a lot of opportunity. Um, whatever happens with, uh, with government in the next few months, and I guess that's all up for grabs, uh, it's really clear that uh, schools are going to continue to academise. Uh, I personally think academising is, is, is a good thing or can be a good thing. But again, that, that focus around using data in a good way uh, and managing your trust's culture in order to retain good staff, I think those are the two key things at the moment for me. Yeah, no, I'd agree, Nick. And I think exciting times uh, they are. I think there is a, a definite roadmap, so at least there's some certainty there. Um, and there's the opportunity for, for trust to take control of the educational landscape within their within their own areas so um, yeah exciting times ahead um, so thank everyone for listening and if you found this valuable don't forget to subscribe to our podcast channel uh, we'll be discussing all of these topics in more detail in upcoming podcasts and you can find us on all social media channels um, so it's goodbye from me